All right, folks, welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. Coming at you from Columbia, Missouri, where we're hosting the 2020, yes, it's 2020, uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever state meeting for Missouri today. We got all sorts of partners and chapter volunteers, about 250 people joining us in Columbia on this Saturday for terrific conversations about um, wildlife habitat, quail, bird dogs, wild game cooking, and monarch butterflies, pollinators, pollinator habitat, and this particular episode is going to focus on that connection between monarchs and those quail that we dearly love and the habitat that they all share. This is a conversation about a relatively new initiative called Missourians for Monarchs, the story of how collaboration is driving habitat for all sorts of species and uh, how the Show Me State is leading the way for monarchs and pollinators and um, we're going to talk about what that collaboration is with my guests today. And from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we have Kelly. And you've got a hyphenated last name. Or maybe it's not, there's no hyphen. There is no hyphen. So, it's, you know, I haven't pronounced your last name yet. So it's Shrigley Warner. That is correct. Is right? That is correct. So we have Kelly from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, Kelly. So um, I do work for the Fish and Wildlife Service, but my job in the Fish and Wildlife Service is probably the most exciting job of all time. Because <laughs> what I get to do is I get to work with private landowners. I get to work with quail and pheasants forever. I get to work with a variety of organizations, state and federal agencies, to do nothing more than conserve and protect habitat through habitat restoration hmm. in the state of Missouri. And you are kind of the quarterback of this collaboration we're going to talk a lot about today, the Missourians for Monarchs. Give us the uh, kind of the background on this collaboration and, and how this came together. Yeah, so, so the background and in, in the value of working with private landowners through the Fish and Wildlife Service is that we do that through a program called the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. And the, the value of that is that we bring technical assistance and we also bring funding to the table to help landowners do habitat work. Mm. Um, we were uh, petitioned as a Fish and Wildlife Service back in 2014 mm -hmm. yep. about um, listing the monarch um, and putting the monarch on the endangered species list. Um, we really wanted to evaluate uh, where we were and, and where the population was at that point in time. Um, and what evolved in Missouri was everybody wanted to talk about what should we do? Hmm. Um, how should we address the, uh, the monarch concerns as it related to habitat across the state? And we did that by getting a whole slew of people in a room to have a discussion about monarchs and monarch habitat. Mm. And what resulted in that then was this collaboration partnership called Missourians for Monarchs. Because at the end of the day, what we all determined was that, yeah, quite frankly, we did need to do some work in Missouri for monarchs. And 
the value of doing something in Missouri for monarchs meant that we were going to do something for quail. Mm -hmm. We were going to do something for grassland birds that are in great decline. We were going to do something for resident wildlife. And we knew that it was a win-win for everybody. So we're going we're gonna to dive deep into Missourians for Monarchs and what, um, uh, what was happening <coughs> back in 2014 that led to that creation and what's happened since. Uh, but we'll continue around the room with the introductions for this conversation. We've got Kim Cole, our Education and Outreach Program folks, uh, folks, <laughs> <laughs> folks, good, good for me, right? Uh, program Manager in Missouri. You've been on about a little over a year, right? Uh, not quite a year. Okay. Yeah, um, I came on April of 2019, so just coming up on a year being with the organization and having a great time getting to do all kinds of awesome stuff. So, um, but I do all of our, uh, outreach work here in Missouri. Um, a big part of my job is trying to tell our story yeah. about our organization and our mission about our chapters, all the work that they do about the work our biologists do. Um, and really just trying to connect those dots between our chapter members, our partners, our, any of the landowners that we work with, um, trying to get everybody, you know, in the same room at the same table, because we're all in this together working on these things and the things we can do with these partnerships with these collaboratives is it it just exponentiates that when we get everybody together so my job is to connect those dots and tell the story and um, as these collaboratives happen and we put this habitat on the ground and do all this work I want to get that word out there so more people are aware of it they know what's going on and understand the importance of whether it's monarchs and pollinators or quail and other birds, right. any of that wildlife, um, having an awareness of that, understanding the importance of it, and, and hopefully making connection with it, getting themselves involved with our organization and chapters and maybe potentially with our other partners and some, some programs to put that habitat on the ground. So, And I'm you're just, a Missouri native too, right? I am a Missouri native, yes. I uh, grew up in St. Charles, which is just right outside of the St. Louis area. Um, been here my whole life. Spent about 14 years in Missouri. Uh, went there, went to the University of Missouri. Gotcha. As an undergraduate student, got my degree in psychology, huh. uh, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. But uh, found my way over here into the conservation field just... That's what I'm passionate about. Got into into that uh, as an adult, and just really figured out that's that's where my heart is, and that's the stuff I love to do. So I wonder if you're the only psychology degree in the <laughs> Pheasants Forever's four and Quail Forever's <sighs> 400 employee roster. I feel like there's one more. Do you? I feel like there's one more, um, but you know, I get the question a lot of you know what in the world. Yeah psychology and now you're in conservation and dealing with wildlife and um but with the work that I do with outreach and mm -hmm. trying to tell stories and connecting people um you know I never thought those two very different things would end up being so closely tied together but I work with people so I got to understand the things that they value and find relevant and use those things to help connect them with us right. and what we do and um so it's Oddly enough, my psychology degree is, <laughs> is paying off and, uh, you know, but yeah, I'm a Missouri native, been here my whole life. And, uh, so in the state agency world, they call it human dimensions, right? The human dimensions <laughs> drive, drive, uh, societal and, um, conservation policy. Yes, absolutely. And 
you know, without understanding the human aspect of all of this, you know, we're as humans, we're the ones that can make these decisions and, and do the work and understand the importance of it. And we, in order for us to manage wildlife and habitat, there's a lot of people management that goes in that too. So, uh, Kelly, just circle back real quickly. You have a biology degree, correct? I do. I'm a fish and wildlife biologist. I, I really specialized more in waterfowl than anything. Mm. Um, Where'd you go to school? Well, I went to school at MU, so I'm just like Kim. I I went here to the University of Missouri in Columbia and got my degree in fisheries and wildlife and then focused on an emphasis in waterfowl and wetlands. And And are you a Missouri native as well? I am not. Okay. (laughs) I am a huge Denver Broncos fan, (laughs) (laughs) which is a very uncomfortable place to be right now. I bet it is. Since the Chiefs are going to the (laughs) Super Bowl, but... I'm very, I'm very happy about the Chiefs. My husband, my husband. <laughs> you are wearing fan. red. Even. I am wearing red, and at, quite frankly, that was part of the reason I was. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, uh, we'll just say I'm a Colorado <coughs> Chiefs fan. Yeah. We, won't, we won't say that too loud. Um, no, I actually was born in Colorado, and I spent part of my childhood in Iowa, and that's frankly how I learned to appreciate conservation. You, you take a girl out of a place like Colorado, and you shift her over into Iowa and she's never seen a landscape quite like Iowa surrounded by agriculture and corn when mm. I was surrounded by mountains and sure, meadows sure. Um, I began to appreciate nature at a very early age and I had a teacher that nurtured that and lo and behold I am now a biologist and it's come full circle I'll be honest with you one of my favorite favorite things to do when I was a kid was to look for chrysalises of mm. monarchs sure mm. So now I'm protecting monarchs. Yeah, good for you. It's pretty gratifying, I bet. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Uh, and rounding out our conversation, the <laughs> first many of us have ever met, met <laughs> of uh, Donna Marie, <laughs> all one word. Right? That is correct. <laughs> you you can't encounter too many Donna Marie's. Uh, yeah, honestly, I have never come across another Donna Marie where Donna Marie is one name, one word. Donna First name, middle right. name, and they use the two together, but Donna Marie first word never. And so, you know, you should go kind of like the Madonna. <laughs> like that's just your name. Just Donna just Marie. Donna Marie. Yeah. But you do have a last name. I do. Donna Marie <laughs> Duffin. And I even have a middle name. You do? Yeah. <laughs> What's and your so middle I, name? Haven. Donna Marie Haven Duffin. Yes. So I use I use the H a lot. Uh-huh. You know, just to Gently remind people. <laughs> See, there's a middle initial, which means Marie's not the middle name. But alas, yeah. a lot of times it comes out with just just Donna. So. <laughs> well, Donna Marie. Yes. Where Where are you from, and what'd you grow up? Uh, where'd you grow up, and what's your background? So my, uh, I'm originally from um, actually the East Coast, Mid Atlantic, hmm. Delaware. Okay. Um, and then I've I've kind of always been a um, a person who likes to move around a lot. So as soon as I was 18, I moved out. And um, from that time on, I, I went to school. But at that time, I went to school for a different career. It was not wildlife. It was actually computer science. And I had a long, prosperous career in that for 20 years and then decided, hmm, I'm a little too young and I need to do something else a little different and more interesting. What's my passion? And by then, I had moved from Delaware to Maryland to Pennsylvania and then up to New Hampshire. And I'm a little, I'm, I'm almost exactly opposite of Kelly, but for the exact same reason, found out that I love nature. Hmm. I came from 
urban suburban and not a lot of nature in Mm. my backyard in my surroundings I had to make effort to kind of go and when you live at the ocean with the beach my effort was usually spent just going to the ocean and the beach then I moved to New Hampshire and they had you know pristine lakes and and the forests and the mountains and meadows and I almost didn't know that that type of habitat existed outside of movies Mm. so when I saw that I you know I thought well, what happened? Why, if this is how so much of our land was, what happened where I came from? Sure. Um, and so as I kind of delve in, I that was my first foray into conservation. And I was elected to the small town that I lived in was Ware, um, New Hampshire. And um, so I was elected to the Conservation Commission for the town of Ware. And, um, <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's the town of Ware. It's Ware. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> the town of Ware. Mm-hmm. W- W-H-E-R-E? Mm-hmm. Yep. D- no, it's actually W-E-A-R-E. So you would think it's pronounced Weir, uh-huh. but it's Ware. <laughs> and then I lived in North Ware, which was abbreviated N-O. Where nowhere. and so, yes, <laughs> and so the running joke was, "Oh, you live in nowhere." So and it was very rural, so it was somewhat fitting. Yeah. But yeah, so that was my first kind of foray to realize this is important. Yeah. I've I've seen what can happen if you don't protect it mm-hmm. and preserve it and conserve it. So yeah, so I kind of you know was doing that, but I, and at that time I was um, in a federal position, director of IT. Completely separate, but I became so passionate on the cons- on that conservation commission board. I wanted to do more, and and like I said, I I was at a director level already in my prior career. Uh-huh. I was thirty, what was I thirty two, and I was already at director level. I, I was like, this is not going to probably work for me. I hung out like another six or seven years. But the whole time I kept thinking, I need to do, I need another career. I need something else. And I'm young enough, just about, that I can probably make it happen. And so it was wildlife biology. And so I then moved to Rhode Island. <laughs> um, and I went to University of Rhode Island and, and got my, the fourth degree for the conservation, for the uh, wildlife biology. Well, good for you. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And how'd you end up in Missouri? Because one of my professors, one of my mentor professors, Dr. Scott uh, McWilliams, I was telling him that I was probably going to be leaving Rhode Island and Mm -hmm. kind of looking at other states. And he's a Midwestern boy, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, have you considered, you know, Missouri? And and I just kind of looked at him and I I said, Missouri? You know, and and he said, there's nothing wrong with the Midwest. I said, I didn't say that. There's just no ocean in the Midwest, you know, and he said they have rivers, you know, <laughs> but then he explained after the joking, all joking aside, he explained Missouri was doing amazing things in habitat conservation hmm. and they were leading the way in so many different areas. So he sincerely said, honestly, if you're considering, you know, career in wildlife, you know, and you want to go to one of the premier states that, you know, is really making a difference in leading the efforts, consider Missouri. Here I am. Wow. So yeah. it, it was your first job with Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, or with, with Missouri Department of Conservation? It was with Missouri Department of Conservation, yes. Yeah. So I came here um, and worked um, in the wildlife division and helped write the uh, state wildlife action plan gotcha. for the state of Missouri um, and then was hired on um, to another position within a different division, mm. design and development, which fell back more on my prior career of kind of the program management and and things of that nature. Um, And then I saw the ad for this position, the um, Monarch and Pollinator Coordinator for Missourians for Monarchs. Gotcha. 
Um, and it was the perfect blend yeah. because the bulk of my career, if we want to simplify of what I do for this position with Missourians for Monarchs, I'm the program manager. I'm the statewide Missouri um, statewide monarch and pollinator coordinator. And I help um, kind of keep all of the different organizations within the collaborative in communication. I kind of coordinate the communication between and, and you know, funnel and whatnot, all the different communication. But um, this position allowed me to bring in the program management years of experience that I had, but to my passion right. for the wildlife biology. And the best part was I loved Missouri Department of Conservation. I had made amazing friends, colleagues, contacts, and a network of individuals. And so coming to this position, I still get to work with all of the folks that I met while at MDC, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Quail Forever folks, NRCS folks. So it was the best of every world. I get to work with every, every conservation organization that, and then some that's in this state. So it was... That's such a yeah. fun background. It, it was awesome. And that, it, that's, there's a podcast in and of itself <laughs> just with you to talk about like reinventing yourself. It was, you know, every, it was fun. Every few years. That's terrific. It was Good fun. for you. That, <laughs> Thank that's you. super fun. All right. So let's start. Missourians for Monarchs. And you talked about it launching in 2014, but I want you to, Kelly, I'm, um, I want you as the biologist here to dial it back even a little bit further and set the stage for us as to what was happening on the landscape um, as it relates to monarchs, quail, and habitat even before 2014. So the, the, the things that you have to know about monarchs first is that monarchs occur in three different countries, uh, Mexico, the United States, and Canada. And the thing about monarchs is that they migrate. And so the first thing that we needed to do was figure out what was happening along that migratory corridor and why uh, the monarch was starting to decline. So it wasn't just starting to decline. I mean, it was precipitous. I mean, some of the statistics, I mean, in the last two decades, 80% of our uh, three countries' uh, populations of monarchs had disappeared. Yeah, and even continued further as the listing um, request had happened when we were petitioned to list the species. Who petitions a um, listing? Anybody can petition the Fish and Wildlife Service to list the species. Uh, in this case, it was the Center for Biological, Biological Diversity. Gotcha. Okay. And um, and then a couple of other entities. And and it, basically, they had just noted that you know people who were following monarchs were starting to see this decline right. and wanted to bring the service in and and bring some focus on that so that we would work to do what we do mm -hmm. and our mission is to uh, conserve and protect and enhance fish wildlife plants and their habitats right. for the continuing benefit of the american people in this case it was going to also be these other two countries that we needed to involve so that that in and of itself was a bit of a herculean effort because we needed to coordinate with these other governments um, not just our own to try to determine what was going on with right. monarchs well it turns out the really big thing going on with monarchs is loss of habitat mm -hmm. Um, and the one special thing about monarchs is that they rely on 
a single species, well, not a single species, but a, a genus of plants that they breed on. And if you don't have that plant, you don't have any monarchs. And and that's milkweed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we knew that we were losing populations of milkweed through the migratory corridor, which in turn was resulting in this downward trend. Also in the wintering grounds, because again, they migrate, they winter in Mexico, there's habitat loss in Mexico as well. And they winter in the OML forests in <coughs> Mexico. And in a very small con- contained area, it's not it's not like they are broad-based across the country of Mexico. They're, they're in these really small, discrete areas, hmm. and those forests were being impacted. They were being over-harvested. You call them? Uh, Oyamel. Oyamel. Mm-hmm. Is, and where's that word come from? What does that mean? I do not know. Okay. Um, is it the type of trees? It is the Oy- type of Oyamel? tree. Yeah, okay. yeah, but I don't know. So milkweed is absolutely inextricably linked to monarch butterflies like they, they they eat it they um, put their um, larva on it right yeah. like it, it, you can't have monarchs without milkweed that's right? exactly right and I, that's what I tell everybody if you don't have milkweed you don't have monarchs that's that's our mantra in this state that's and we help everybody understand that there's a variety of different species of milkweed common mm-hmm. swamp all of them are good for monarchs or is there one or couple that are most important so the science is showing that there's there's really three main species that monarchs depend upon and and for milkweeds common milkweed is one uh swamp milkweed is another butterfly milkweed is another Mm. um in our state that those seem to be the three highest um plants that that the monarchs will key in on. Okay. So, uh, you know, what we've noted over time is that our population of common milkweed has gone down. You used to see it a lot in roadsides. Mm-hmm. You used to see it in riparian zones. You just don't see it the way that you used to see it. And so we knew that that was part of the problem. And swamp milkweed, if I'm remembering correctly, obviously it's intuitive that the moisture mm-hmm. soil is where it grows. And it's um, it's kind of a pinkish flower, if mm-hmm. I recall yep. correctly, right? Yep. Yep. And then butterfly milkweed beautiful prairie milkweed and super bright orange flowers to it right exactly yeah and then quail forever colors yeah Yeah. (laughs) exactly (laughs) and then common milkweed like you would intuit uh, it's what most people see and and it's got that great big um cocoon shaped seed um, yes the pod pod pod, right yep one of the key things with the milkweed um is that we have wherever the location is that the milkweed that you have on hand in your habitat is native to your area Mm -hmm. that's what's more crucial um so you know if you have maybe like in our area tropical milkweed is not Mm. native so that would be something that yeah they they could use but it can also you know cause issues so for whatever state or country um you know the, the they're migrating through it's what's most important is that the milkweed that's available to them be native to the region that they're in at that time. Right. That's a great point. Talk to your farm bill biologist in whatever state you live in Mm -hmm. to figure out what the right milkweed is. Right. Um, All right. Tell me uh, the biology of a monarch to make it from, say, Duluth, Minnesota, to the, say, the forests in Mexico again. Oyamel. Oyamel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to 
butcher that this entire episode, so <laughs> forgive me. Oyamel. It's a fascinating biological kind of case study, or that probably the wrong, but tell me the ecology of that um, monarch getting from point A to the Oyamel forest in Mexico. Monarchs are incredibly special, and they do something in their life cycles that is not mimicked. When you think of a little butterfly, and, and monarchs aren't necessarily little, but they don't weigh a whole lot. If you were to put two soybeans in your hand, that's about how much a monarch weighs. Hmm. Well, here's the thing. The monarch can travel thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, and that's exactly what they do. So we're going to start early in the year. So right about now, they're getting ready to leave the OML forest in Mexico. So now we're recording this uh, mid-January. Um, so right now they're thinking about moving north yep. uh, so from Mexico. They've been wintering since last October, September-ish, somewhere okay. in that vicinity. And so now they're, they're gearing up, they're waking up, they're getting ready to take flight, and they're going to start heading north. And, and what have they been eating in the oil mill forest? Nothing. 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 They, they kind of go Fasting. In. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They, that's why the energy, that's why they need those resources when she gets to that, you know, for that final migration south. That's why all of the flowering forbs are so important. Okay. So as, as they start to migrate north, they're leaving Mexico, they're coming into southern Texas, and that's the first place that they're going to stop off and lay eggs. Hmm. So they'll get to Texas, they'll find a host plant, some milkweed, some mm-hmm. milkweed plant, mm-hmm. and they will, they will deposit their eggs on those milkweed plants. Then what happens is those eggs will hatch. And those larvae will start feeding on that milkweed, and they will start growing and growing through what we call instars. So the parent butterfly is Dies. deceased. Yeah, mm-hmm. passes okay. away. So now the the offspring in southern Texas are eaten. Yep, so they're eaten away. So you can go out and look on any milkweed, and you'll find caterpillars, mm-hmm. what we call, and and they're, they're kind of a yellow, green, and black striped caterpillar. And they'll go through these instar stages until they get to the point where it's time to metamorphosis into a chrysalis. Well, form a chrysalis and then metamorph- metamorphosis into a, a butterfly. And what time of year are we talking about right now? So that'll probably start happening towards the end of February, early March. Wow. And so... So we've lost the parent generation, right? right? The, so so now the, we have a new generation. Right. Generation so, one. So those kiddos, those kiddos are going to start traveling north, okay. and they start heading towards Oklahoma and Missouri. And so right around the April, May time frame, we'll start seeing monarch butterflies in Missouri. And they will repeat that same process. They'll lay eggs. The caterpillars will be born. They'll feed on the milkweed. And then that generation will move even further north. Hmm. And then they'll start hitting 
Iowa and Minnesota in the height of the summer. Now we'll keep some of those monarchs. They yeah. may they may start in southern Missouri and end up in northern Missouri. So we'll keep some of those monarchs, but by and large, the bulk of the population will continue to move north, hmm. and and they'll they'll keep doing that, and and it spreads you know basically through the central U.S. all the way over to Ohio, as far uh, west as central Montana, and then. The third generation will happen in Iowa and Minnesota. And that process is repeated again. They'll lay their eggs, they'll feed on the milkweed, and then the parent dies off, and then the offspring will, if, if the timing is right, and you know, sometimes it's a little, sometimes it's a fourth generation, sometimes it's a third, but if there is time and the weather is right, they'll go into Canada okay. and repeat the process again. Wow. And this is say august yep mm -hmm. so now we're into august and september uh -huh. now keep in mind this we've got four generations that fourth generation has never ever seen an oml forest right they have never ever seen mexico and they know that when it starts getting colder mm -hmm. it's time to head south wow and they'll take this fantastic journey south to mexico some will continue to stop off and and reproduce again. They will. They okay. will. That, that was one of my questions. Mm -hmm. If they, if they caught a wind gust in Duluth and flew all the way to Mexico, or yep. if they uh, stopped off and laid eggs again. So some will try to do that. Some might stop off and have another another offspring. Um, we see a, a really good population of monarchs in the fall yes. in Missouri, yeah. and it's around the September, early October range, and then that generation will continue and overwinter in Mexico. And that last generation, um, and this, the, the research indicates it has something to do with um, the temperature, um, daylight, you know, day, you know, the, the, the days getting shorter. But when that last generation emerges from the chrysalis, they are, they emerge in the state of diapause, which is no ability to reproduce. Mm. So that last generation does not reproduce. All it does is it will feed from wherever it is, if it's Missouri or, you know, further north where it started, that last generation will just stop off everywhere it can on its way to Mexico, fly all the way down. It'll, you know, roost overnight in different trees, and you'll mm -hmm. see that occasionally even here in Missouri. Um, but they will look for all of those flowering forbs and nectaring plants that are so important, those late-blooming summer and fall mm -hmm. plants. They will feed on that because they need to store all of their energy reserves, and that's also why they go into diapause. A lot of our a lot of resources are used for insects and, and invertebrates for reproduction. Mm -hmm. So they're born into that diapause, so they can just take all of that energy, store it to make the trek all the way down to Mexico. Because as you heard Kelly saying earlier, those you know generations one through you know three or four, however many it ends up being, those first generations, they reproduce, they die off. Mm -hmm. This last generation is born, has to fly the thousands of miles down to Mexico, spend the entire winter in those OML fur, fur forests, then fly back up to Texas mm. to start the next generation for the next season. So they can live up to nine months. Wow. So, so these, the ones that have the diapause never reproduce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they eventually do the following year. Oh, okay. When they so fly they gotta, back up to Texas, gotcha. then, then they come out of diapause and they reproduce at that time. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, so these guys that are getting ready to leave Mexico, those are the ones that have been in diapause, and huh. they're they're going to lay their first eggs in Texas. Huh, so it's like hibernation for reproduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any other species you know of that goes through something like that? There are other species that are known that can go in and out of diapause, mm-hmm. not to the same extent that you know, what the monarchs do. Wow. You know? So... You know, we really kind of focused in on, you know, the the actual offspring and, and the, the migration progression all the way up into Canada. Mm-hmm. But the, the real key point beyond the milkweeds is that when the adults start flying, they're not feeding on milkweed. They're feeding on nectar. Okay. And so they really, really need those native... Um, prairie plants. This is late fall. This is like, this is all oh, through, through the, the migration. Okay. Yep. So you need flowering native plants all the way from southern Texas mm. all the way up to Canada, um, and those those nectaring uh, we we call them native forbs, mm-hmm. but basically they're native flowers that used to be in prairie habitat. Okay. So we we focus in on making sure that monarchs have those species growing as well through spring, summer, and fall. Which is why when we talk about monarchs, we talk about pollinator habitat in the same breath. And that's why whenever whenever we talk about, you know, quality monarch and pollinator habitat, it's always the combination of milkweed and those native flowering forbs or nectarine forbs and the diversity of the species, the flowering species, to and the the diversity of bloom time so that it, as Kelly just mentioned, from spring, summer, fall. Right. Because through Missouri especially, um, they are here during all those different. Mm-hmm. We are very blessed in Missouri and, and, and you know, many parts of the Midwest, but we're very blessed in Missouri to have them migrate up their north and then migrate right back there, you know, past us. So we get two peak seasons, you know, with them. So we are very special. <laughs> we are. We're, we're truly special. And we're right smack dab in the middle of their migration corridor. So Missouri is critical to mm-hmm. monarch survival. And, and then, you know, to think about the, the collaboration amongst organizations and landowners and state and federal agencies and all of the work that we've combined ourselves to concentrate on mm-hmm. um, is why Missourians for Monarchs was born. So to dive a little deeper into this when you you think about pre-2014 and it's been well documented our loss of pollinator habitat across the country right so there's a lack of flowering plants native prairie flowers across the grasslands diverse mixes and crp and and then at the same time there's a decline in the amount of milkweed out there so you got a double whammy going on for monarch butterflies right Mm -hmm. um you, you mentioned about how valuable Mexico is, and <laughs> I'm going to blank on that. <laughs> I want to say it again. Oyamel. Oyamel. Oyamel for us, and it's a relatively small area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine working with Mexico, critically important component of this entire project, because you can create all the pollinator habitat you want in in the united states but if they don't have this wintering ground Mm -hmm. that's trouble absolutely and the fish and wildlife service is working very closely with the country of mexico as well as the country of canada so that we have this this combined 
uh, focus on the migratory needs of monarchs through the entire life cycle. And and does Mexico put the same level of value on monarchs that they, they really want to save this species as well? They do. And in fact, they've set up um, a number of preserves mm. in Mexico uh, dedicated to nothing more than conserving the OML forest for monarchs. That, so one of the you know, maybe, oh, I, I guess it ends up being a nice happenstance with being able to monitor, monitor monarchs is they do come back to a central location. So they're, unlike a whole lot of other species, mm-hmm. quail, pheasants, even ducks, <laughs> you got a concentrated place to look and count them. Yes. So you got a pretty good handle on what the population is. You do, but you can't count every single individual. So what we do is we look at it from the amount of habitat they occupy. Gotcha. And so what we've decided, in order to have a viable population over time, we want to make sure that at least six hectares of the oil fir forests are actually being occupied by monarchs. Hmm. And so that's a threshold that we're always striving for. Now, Certain years it's going to go above that line, certain years it's going to go below that line, but our intent is to try to maintain at least six hectares of habitat. As you start talking about the migratory corridor for monarchs, I do think about, at least there was sort of a roadmap from waterfall, at least from a joint venture perspective and migratory corridors. is that, is that true that the Fish and Wildlife Service was able to take some of the best of uh, waterfall partnerships and plug that into monarchs? Or is it like, yeah, you know, this is such a unique species that we were starting kind of completely fresh? No, you know, it's interesting. The, the cool thing about monarchs and their migration is that it is a lot like birds, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really a large focus of the Fish and Wildlife Service. So um, the Missourians for Monarchs model, I would say, is is we were first out the gate, and we were incredibly uh, focused to try to get a plan put together in a very short period of time. But all kinds of states were doing the same thing Hmm. and thinking in terms of a joint venture. And in a grand scheme of things, there is a monarch joint venture now, and it is composed of all kinds of organizations, hundreds of organizations. And that in and of itself is a feat because you obviously have to keep things turning and burning for those entities as well. But everybody's focused on the same thing. And here's the thing about monarchs that makes it so wonderful. You can focus on the habitat and focus on the needs of the monarch. But when you're doing that, you're also focusing on the needs for quail. You read my mind. That was exactly where I wanted to go because I'm sure, you know, some folks have listened to the podcast and heard, and we've had specific episodes on the connection between pollinators and and pheasants and quail. But for folks that haven't heard those episodes, explain the, you know, why, you know, we're spending an hour on a Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever podcast talking about monarchs because they are very intertwined. They are. They're incredibly intertwined because you've got um, you've got monarchs depending on these native grasses and forbs and milkweeds, but you also have quail that need the same kind of habitat. Pheasants do very well with a similar habitat. Right. 
Declining grassland birds do well with a similar habitat. Right. Uh, Meadowlarks, dicks, meadowlarks, bobolinks, exactly. So all of those species benefit from putting back on the landscape what once used to be here, and that's native prairie. Mm -hmm. And so that's what all of our organizations are concentrating on. We're concentrating on putting back on the landscape what used to occur, what used to exist, and knowing that by doing that, we're building this patchwork of habitats throughout that migratory corridor right. for all of these species. Now, why is that important? Because when you have these diverse mixtures of flowers and blooming plants and grasses, you also have all of these different insects that depend on those systems. <coughs> and some will only exist by depending on a particular species. Right. So like our monarch needs milkweed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of bugs that need a particular plant for their existence. But when you have a, a, a clutch of a quail mm -hmm. and they hatch, what do they need? Yeah, yeah. pollinator habitat and monarch habitat is like an old country buffet for a brood it, of quail. Mm, change, it right? is, it is. Those invertebrates taste really good to I'll the quail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll bring two plates up to the buffet <laughs> That's table. That's right, it's like setting the table. Yeah. So those youngins are going to have something to eat right away. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, during that life stage of, of a small bird, that's critical. And it doesn't matter if it's a quail or a pheasant or a bobolink, it doesn't matter. Yeah. They all need to eat, and that's that protein is critical to their survival. And we, we've talked about the migration, and I, I always think about, I think, it was, I think it was about 2014, President Obama at the time issued a, a document about recovering uh, the monarch butterfly. And uh, things that stick out in my mind, CRP was going to be the number one tool for getting habitat on the ground specific to creating milkweed and pollinator habitat. And then from a visual perspective, this corridor that you're talking about, um, it really does start from Duluth on, in Minnesota on I-35 and follows I-35 yes. straight down through Des Moines, Iowa, Kansas City, mm -hmm. all the way down to Dallas, Texas. I mean, mm -hmm. that from a visual perspective, anybody that lives along I-35 cutting through the center part of the United States you're in the Monarch Corridor. Is that accurate visualization? It is, and, and it's even more detailed than that. Um, research has shown that I believe the number is 70%, I think it's actually a little bit more than 70%, but 70% of the Monarchs that are that overwinter at the OML for, at in the Oyamel for forest. I'm glad somebody else had <laughs> trouble with it on this podcast. <laughs> and I know what it is, right? <laughs> Whew, it's a tongue tie. But um, seventy per, over seventy percent of the monarchs that um, overwinter in that forest are actual or actually originate in the Corn Belt area, wow. which is part of Missouri and Iowa. So that is why. Um, these states are so crucial to, um, you know, ensuring that not only is the milkweed there, but those, you know, flowering forbs and native forbs are there because they're going to need all of that fuel to get them down there. But, you know, it just shows. And of course, the I-35 corridors right there in, right. you know, in that Corn Belt area. But it's that's why it's so crucial in this Midwestern area. Yeah. If you think about a, just a visual center of the bullseye mm -hmm. for the monarch's migration to and fro, right. it's Missouri. And ideally, you know, if we could truly get habitat, you know, back to how it was many, many decades ago and, you know, before, our, you know, the um, amount of develop developing that has 
um, impeded on their habitat, that would be great, but it's not realistic, mm -hmm. you know, but we still need to provide them a corridor. So the CRP programs, you know, through the Farm Bill um, are clearly instrumental. Um, I believe it's Wayne Thogmartin's paper, you know, laid out all of the parameters that would be required to get the hectare size up to, you know, six hectares. Um, and without agricultural lands, mm. um, you know, included in that in the CRP programs and whatnot, we would not be able to realistically achieve uh, the goal of the six hectares. Um, but in addition to those six hectares that we need and, and all the CRP lands and the other programs that are out there, um, um, the USDA has, the NRCS has the EQIP programs, Kelly's um, partnership um, program. They have their own, I never remember the name of it, Kelly. Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. Thank you. They have, you know, the programs. There are so many state and federal programs that are out there to put the habitat on the ground. But the urban and suburban um, individuals are just as important. Mm -hmm. They sometimes get overlooked or since we tend to focus on the larger parcels, um, not, not enough attention is sometimes given to the urban and suburban, sure. um, you know, uh, citizens as well. And, and it's just as important because when the monarch are flying, they might not be flying just over, right. you know, the agricultural lands. Right. There's wildlife a lot of management yeah. area to yeah. wildlife management area. Exactly. Right. So they, but they need to, you know, they need, because they have such a fast metabolism, they need to keep, re, you know, replenishing. Well, that, that, that reserve. And so having the small urban, suburban gardens, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's in your backyard, if it's an actual city park, wherever it be, that that you know, that monarch can just alight down and, and see that and, well, let me just have a little meal while I'm, right. while I'm on my way and then flutter on and continue its migration. It's well, key. An another key um, partner in a visualization connection is um, we've talked about Interstate 35. Mm-hmm. The Department of Transportation yes. plays a huge role in this opportunity, doesn't yes. it? Correct, yeah. Um, and they do have best management practices in place for trying to time the mowing because there's a lot of research that shows the different mowing times. If you can obviously mow the milkweed when maybe it's not going to have the larvae mm -hmm. <laughs> on mm -hmm. it at that moment, um, you know, that that's crucial as well as trying to control the invasive species that are out there, but you also want a time when you're spraying for invasive species so that again, you're not, you know, hitting at a time when the, the monarch and the larvae would be on the, the, right. those plants. So, you know, or on the surrounding plants. So it, there are best management practices in place and, and there we're making strides. I mean, it's, it could be a little daunting sometimes <laughs> when you think yeah. of the amount of highway and the amount of roadside. Mm -hmm. Well, the you know, and how much you see of it. Yeah, the challenge is, is trying to educate everybody. Yes. And, and so that's the other beauty of the collaborative for Missourians for Monarchs is because it gives us a platform to help educate others about how to manage for monarchs, how to manage for the habitat, how to get the habitat, and how we're working all together to, to accomplish that. So our Missouri DOT, our Department of Transportation, transportation is part of our collaborative and so having um, a lot of these corridor entities so we're talking about folks that run transmission lines so our electrical cooperatives are part right. of our collaborative Ameren yes. Ameren is a big partner and mm -hmm. so we we have those relationships that we've built um, built with MoDOT mm -hmm. um, we're building some relationships with with some of the other corridor uh, type habitats that we have which 
is is incredibly important for for the monarch. So I want to. So we've done a really nice job, I think, of talking about kind of setting the stage and what was happening for monarchs. And I want to spend a little bit more time about how the, the Missourians for Monarchs collaborative formed. Because like, uh, I know you were integral in the very beginning. Did you know? Was this uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director said, "Okay, go do something in your state," and you just send out an email, and a whole bunch of people came together? What were what were the steps, and what was the initial response? See, you know, it was a little bit bigger than that. Okay. So you had mentioned President Obama had come out with this plan for yeah. for bees and pollinators, and that's really where it, it started. Was with President Obama. He he started working with Canada and Mexico and said, "Hey, you know what? We've got this issue with monarchs, and bees are a problem too. So right. let's start collaborating a little bit more." So it really kind of started there, and they actually the three. Um, countries signed an agreement to focus on pollinators and uh, that was a pretty incredible feat so uh, everybody was dedicated towards this effort and what happened was um, the National Wildlife Federation collaborated with um, our Missouri um, Prairie Foundation here in the state and they were they were basically campaigning to say, you know, is there something that Missouri can do? If, if we were to think of any state that could come out with an effort to protect monarchs, Missouri would be at the top of the list. Mm. So how should we tackle that? Okay. And from there, uh, lots of organizations were contacted. And, you know, that's, that's the part that I like to call um, that, that opportunity to talk at the table and see if we've got something in common kind of thing. <laughs> like speed dating for conservation. Exactly. And it kind of was like that. I kid you not. We had to have a facilitator to keep us all, you know, <laughs> reined in because we were all getting so excited. And we met for two days around the table. We had breakout sessions all the time to talk about ideas, um, issues, challenges, and, and basically just sat down and outlined all of that mm -hmm. in a two-day framework. And once we got down, done with that, we tried to figure out where do we go from there. And um, we then formed a smaller group out of that larger group. I think about 52 organizations showed up, including private landowners, um, which shows you that Missouri does have an incredible uh, land and conservation ethic and I think that's what helped us the most was everybody knew they needed to roll their sleeves up and figure out how to deal with this issue mm -hmm. and so from there this smaller group decided well if we're going to be able to address these issues we kind of need a plan we need goals we need objectives we need we need like how much habitat do we need? Mm -hmm. You know, those were the questions that we were trying to address. And so we spent the next six to eight months just meeting about that. And at the end of that, we came up with a plan um, called the Missourians for Monarchs. Um, Missouri, Missouri um, Conservation Strategy. Strategy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the plan uh, basically did just that. We figured that we needed uh, somebody that was uh, keyed in on uh, monarch biology and, and science. 
We needed people that were keyed in on uh, the habitat and the habitat work that needed to be done. We needed people that were connected to people and education and human resource or um, um, human dimensions. Psychology. Psychology. <laughs> and the, there's we, a plethora of in. them out there. We knew, yep, yep, see we, where it comes in. <laughs> we knew where we needed that. Um, and and we knew that uh, we needed some some entity or some some smaller group to to have a governance mm. over the over the entire team. So um, that initially is what was in the plan. We became the envy of the country. Mm. Um, every we we had our plan done. I think in fourteen months after that very first meeting, which really on the scale of writing a a conservation plan or a strategic plan is very Mm -hmm. fast-paced. And we did it collaboratively. We did it collectively. We did it jointly. We did it as a team. Mm -hmm. Everybody took off their hat. They didn't care who they represented. The beauty is we have agriculture on our team. We have state and federal agencies on our team. We have NGOs on our team. Academia. Academia is on our team. Um, So we're very well-rounded, and people recognize that right out the gate. And we were getting calls. I know... MDC was getting calls, I was getting calls, and some people said, I, I actually ended up going to Arkansas just to give them a one-day seminar on what we did and how we did mm-hmm. it, and everyone said, well, can we just, on your plan, can we just take Missouri out and put our state in? <laughs> <laughs> so so a, a plan is one thing, but really where the magic has been in Missouri, it's not the plan, because there's lots of great plans, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But the magic for you guys is it's reached the ground. Mm-hmm. So I explain how it reaches the ground and has actually led to, if my numbers are correct, almost 400,000 mm-hmm. acres, acres in the state of Missouri. Correct. So how'd you get the plan into the dirt? So the very first thing that we did was we worked as a team to identify the type of habitat that we needed on the landscape. So... Um, we worked with extension, and, and when I say we, don't, don't, cons- don't consider that that's the Fish and Wildlife Service. We're talking about the collaborative now. Okay. So we, as a collaborative, got together, talked about where we needed habitat, what the habitat needed to consist of. So i.e., are we planting mostly grass? Are we planting just milkweeds? Are we planting you know, six or seven species of flowers, what really constitutes a high quality monarch planting? And we put our heads together as a team and came up with the process of what high quality monarch habitat Mm. would look like. And and we're talking a lot about private lands, Mm -hmm. but some of this is happening on public lands as well, right? Absolutely. So once we had that part done, that was mostly for uh, the the private lands okay. portion and and that's important in Missouri because ninety four percent of this state is in private ownership so we can't have an effect without the assistance and the collaboration with private landowners right. so that's where the chapters of Quail Forever become very important because they're at the local level and they know you know, places where we can go to do some habitat work. But then we roll up our sleeves into all of the different conservation programs that we have. So the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program through the Fish and Wildlife Service, cost share through through Pheasants and Quail Forever, cost share through the Department of Conservation, cost share through the Farm Bill, 
um, all of the different delivery mechanisms for conservation programs, we basically said, we're going to take a bucket and we're all going to throw money in that bucket hmm. so that we can figure out ways then when we have projects come along to put that money out on the landscape to help landowners. And that's basically how we got it done. Um, one unique aspect to um, our work was with the old farm bill, this, the CRP practice that um, was being promoted, CP42, mm-hmm. only required like nine species of flowers. And so basically that's what was being planted, nine species of flowers. Well, when you're talking about high-quality monarch habitat, you need far more hmm. Give me a number that's roughly... 30 plus. Wow. Yeah. So So three times as much. So Mm -hmm. very deficient in that. So the Department of Conservation and the Fish and Wildlife Service collaborated together through the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program and a very large National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grant that we got and rolled up our sleeves to figure out how can we boost the number of Hmm. CP42 species. And we used that bucket of funding to do that. And... So just for clarification mm-hmm. for folks, CP42, Conservation Practice 42 within CRP, yep. that's pollinator-specific program. That's exactly right. And and so we focused our efforts there initially um, to try to bring those species levels up. We were very successful. Landowners <coughs> were incredibly responsive. Yeah. Um, so out of that almost 400,000 acres, there's, in many ways, most of those acres are probably brand new pollinator habitat acres no so uh, how much what percentage do you think are improved acres versus brand new so i don't have a number for um that exact amount but what i can tell you is a large portion i am going to say probably 60 to 70 percent of that four hundred thousand um is actually on public lands Hmm. um and so Part of that 400,000 is any acreage that has either been created or enhanced or under pollinator or monarch-friendly uh, management practices. In other words, timed mowings, things of that nature, um, reduced sprayings, you know, whatever, you know, those best management practices sure. have been outlined. Um, so I would say, I, I think it's around 60 to 70% is actually public lands. Okay. Um, if that kind of sort of answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it answers it's part of it. It's the best I can do yeah, no, for an answer. A, it's okay. It's part of it. So it's, the, the main takeaway, though, is... 400,000 acres of new and improved habitat for pollinators and monarchs since only 2014. Now, here's a key. For the state of Missouri, um, because there are certain requirements that have been outlined in research for how many milkweed stems need to be within that quality monarch and pollinator habitat, um, in in our plan, we actually not... We not only said... 385,000 acres, you know, on the ground, but 385,000 acres with 200 stems of milkweed per each of those acres. Okay. So we are not at a point to say, okay, we've done incredible progress here in the state of Missouri with regards to getting that, that acreage on the ground. Do we think all 400,000 of those acres have 200 stems per acre every acre? 
Probably not. So now we're moving into that next phase where we have to start monitoring and, and, and assessing the habitat and assessing the mixes that have been put on the ground and what are those stems that are coming in and, and whatnot. So we've made incredible progress and, and, and have really moved the, the you know, needle forward, but we're going to need a few hundred thousand more acres probably to really hit that goal, which is, which is key. And that's true really in any state, yeah. you know, because the milkweed, as we mentioned earlier, that's key. No milkweed, no monarchs. So how, how, are, how are you counting milkweed stems in Missouri? Do you want to? Okay. <laughs> um, so Monarch Joint Venture, what Kelly mentioned earlier about that, um, that um, association, they created um, a protocol. It's a program, but I consider it a protocol, but it's called inter- it's, uh, the Integrated Monarch Monitoring Program. Um, and it outlines specific ways to go out and assess the habitat. Um, and th- this program includes both counting milkweed stems, um, assessing the nectarine forbs that are in the area, um, doing a, um, a, they call it a meandering walk, but assessing adult. You can um, assess larvae. And they, they've kind of designed this program to be, I liken it as an a la carte. Whatever your interest or goal or objective gotcha. is, you can do just that aspect of um, the the program. So we trained in 2018. Um, we brought Monarch Joint Venture to Missouri. We trained up about 25 different um, volunteers. Um, and then last, this past season, is when we actually got boots on the ground. And Quail Forever was actually the ones who went and did the boots on the ground. <laughs> and they truly accomplished the first monitoring. Um, and it was the statewide um, across the state. And they did seven different plots. And all the farm bill biologists went and learned the protocol and, and studied up on it. And then they went out there and they assessed. They put the data in. As provided the data to Missourians for Monarchs, but then also provided the data to Monarch Joint Venture. So it goes into a national data set for other studies and research that may, you know, be going on and, and be needing that information. So we're in the infant sure. stages, um, and we're going to be making a big push actually here in Missouri, um, both this winter and, and this upcoming season for volunteers and please come help us and <laughs> look how beautiful the landscape is and it's beautiful weather and you get to come, see more come. of the state that you live in. Please come help we us. Come, <laughs> come count milkweeds. I, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's, I asked because I saw this demonstration by a company called Sentara. Mm. Um, you mm-hmm. know where I'm heading. I know where you're heading. I'm very excited. I'm going to try not to geek out, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, maybe nine months ago, and Sentara is a, uh, a company that creates sensors for drones. Mm-hmm that can identify milkweed from a drone and you can fly this drone over, you know, say a 40 acre strip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth Mm -hmm. in like 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden you get a little data email in your inbox Mm -hmm. and it tells you exactly how many milkweed stem. And, and, you know, we, we talk a lot in, in our world nowadays with precision, precision agriculture, precision, Mm -hmm. precision conservation, you know, using the, the tools of technology. Yes. And and this is another example of, we, you know, we talked about, uh, uh, being able to count monarchs, Mm -hmm. you know, population wise. Here's another thing that is a developing tool for us that's going to really influence our ability to measure success and know where we are or aren't so achieving our goals. you said the key word, developing tool. Um, Monarch Joint Venture 
um, is actually involved with USGS and Centera in a pilot program to count the milkweed. Right now, Centera's um, drone, uh, their software actually counts so many other species, such mm -hmm. as crop species, agricultural sure. species, because that's kind of that was their original focus was that precision ag. Um, but they are they just this past growing season, they went out, they did the drone runs. And this winter, as we speak, they are actually doing the software learning for right now. It's just the common milkweed. They can't identify all the different, but they're doing the program learning, the software learning for the common milkweed and fingers crossed where we we will they will have a finalized accuracy and, and a, a product that they can release so i'm i've i very selfishly plugged myself into that <laughs> so because i know the daunting task that we have ahead of us and that every state and and the countries have ahead of them to try to assess the the number right. of stems of milkweed that are out there and to get accurate readings and, and numbers and, and to, to really be able to determine, you know, is there enough habitat that's on the ground for these monarchs to, you know, fill these six hectares and, and whatnot. Um, but so we're, we're, I'm very anxiously waiting, which is why I said I'm going to try not to geek out. And I think I failed, <laughs> but I tried. <laughs> A for effort for me. So, but yeah. so, you know, all this started happening roughly 2014. It wasn't that long ago. No. You know, we're only six years down the road and we're barely into that six year right mm -hmm. we've already got some pretty good news other than you know some statistics about habitat improvements we already have some good news about monarchs right what was the what's the population trend for monarchs because i if i recall correctly last year's wintering population was a pretty um, optimistic uh, or a jump that provided a lot of optimism for the community. It was. It was. Uh, I believe it was one hundred and fourteen percent was the the increase. I believe that's the the exact number, um, which is very encouraging. But the monarch that migration process, um, how delicate they are, as Kelly mentioned earlier, um, there's a lot against them. You know, climate change has an impact. So any severe weather could in one year drop that right back down. Mm. Um, I was speaking to Dr. Um, Chip Orley, um, who's one of the premier researchers in Monarchs for I think at least two, but I think three or more decades at this point. Um, and his research and many papers that he has written, um, he has explained one of the keys is the climate, is it's the temperature. Mm. Um, so when they are first coming out of their hibernation or their, you know, their overwintering in Mexico and they're reaching into Texas. The, the temperature that may be at that time, it has a huge impact. So if all conditions are ideal, then we have those incredible years like we had last year. Mm. If we don't have all those same ideal, there's a major, you know, windstorm that comes through, or if it's a little colder, if we, I think it was two years ago, we, we were cold. Our winter seemed to never end until June, I think it was. Um, and we did not have such a great year, but that was true for, you know, a sure. lot of the, the, the area. Um, those types of things have a huge impact. And that's one of the reasons why the number that was set for, you know, six hectare, mm -hmm. is so that that population of monarchs is large enough so that when those types of events occur that are out of out of our control, we right. can't control those things right now, 
they can, we're going to have a drop, but they can rebound right. somewhat easily. It's kind of the fundamental principle of uh, biology, whether you're talking about pheasants, quail, Correct. or monarchs. If you have quality habitat, there you go. it's going to mitigate the influence of weather. Exactly, right. exactly. You know, and, and so that's, you know, that's kind of, so we, we have had, last year was very encouraging. Um, they're probably in, in, in the, the midst of putting all that data together for us right now. It's usually um, right around the beginning of February is when we get the overwintering numbers. So they're probably finalizing all that data right now. Um, and we just all anxiously await to, to hear what it's going to be. And what's the weather forecast in, in Texas in the next couple of weeks? Anybody know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. Do you? Can you make a prediction based on the year we just had and habitat improvements? Do you do you anticipate we're going to have a second year of good news, or it's that's there's too many variables to know until they get the count? There's too many variables to know because one of the key indicators is going to be that weather in Texas in the these upcoming weeks. Really? So that's that's going to be key. Okay. So you know, let's let's the set story's our, not over mm -mm. yet. Okay. Got to We got to keep an eye on that weather and you know and see what these what these numbers you know you know come to. I, I'm just I'm just going to put throw throw my hat in the ring and say I don't think we're going to have a huge drop, but we're not we're not going to have an another hundred and fourteen percent increase. I don't think either. Gotcha. This this past year. So. so if somebody wanted to go to Mexico and see it from a you know ecotourism perspective, is that a thing? Oh yes. Oh boy. Yes. Absolutely. Huge. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's like the hottest ticket going in the natural resources world. Those people that are heavily involved in monarchs and the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and even in, in state agencies, if, if they get a chance to go down there, they're going to take it. Huh. And we've actually had folks on our collaborative yep. take that trip mm -hmm. and, and actually go down and see those, those species in those trees. And I'm trying to think of the best way to paint the picture of monarchs hanging out in an OML forest. And it, it's a hard picture to to paint because they basically stack almost on top yes. of one uh. another and they just hang in mm -hmm. these curtains from the trees yeah. and to hear somebody go uh, every single person that I've talked to that has gone on that eco ecotourism right. trip says that it's a life-changing experience huh. so uh, <laughs> you could tell me if this is a thing or not but <clears throat> so I grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan so jealous. And, uh, what's that? I'm so, so jealous. <laughs> and uh, where I proposed to my wife, uh, the Stonington Peninsula. Have you ever heard of the Stonington mm -hmm. Peninsula? So I, I don't know if this is biologically true of a large percentage of monarchs or not, but it happens every year. But mm -hmm. the Stonington Peninsula, monarchs gather on this peninsula and they make the leap um, across Lake Michigan okay. from from this peninsula, which is, I, I can only imagine it's, you know, kind of a microcosm of mm -hmm. what the butterflies look like in Mexico. But they do, they're hanging from the trees, yes. they're stacked up on each other, mm -hmm. and then it must be when the wind is right, they get up and float uh, across Lake Michigan. It's a just a, an amazing spectacle. It, I mean... It's on my bucket list because I've not been one of those fortunate enough to go. So it's on my bucket list. But um, to kind of, you know, ease my 
my sadness for myself. I Google it and I, and I, and I, everybody that I meet that has gone down there, I just nag them with questions. Well, what was this? What was that? How was this? You know, and one of the things, um, one of the um, individuals, I think they actually went not this past season, but season before, um, he had a video that just on his, you know, iPhone, whatever that, that he had taken. Um, and there were so many, they would, while they do hang and they congregate together, they do on the nicer, when the days warm up into, I think it's like 70s or mid 70s, they will flutter. They will flutter around just maybe exercise their wings, whatever they're doing. Um, Then they'll, you know, come back together. But on those days when they flutter, think of how quiet really a a butterfly wings are, right? They're Uh silent as far as we consider. But he had on his phone a video of them all flying and you just sit, they are just thousands, they're, they're all over and they alight on you. They land on everything and they just fly everywhere. But there were so many just in one small area. You could hear it was like not a freight train, but mm. there was a loud thunderous type, you know, background noise <laughs> from all the from wings. From butterflies. From butterfly yeah. wings. But wow. that, and that's just in one small where he was. That's yeah. not, you know, all of those hectares, obviously. But it's. It's just it's it's a miracle. Yeah. I mean, it really what that species or what the species, the life cycle of the species is just something to just you know be amazed by. Do any of the other other uh, other butterflies, other species of butterflies, do anything remotely close to this? They do not migrate like this. No. No, I mean there's some that do migrate, but nothing nothing to this huh. level. Mm-mm. Wow. No. What's the next phase of Missourians for monarchs? What's uh, what's next on the the goals? And what, you know, you're five years in. What happens next? So right now we're reviewing the plan. Um, Donna Marie and I are working on the plan and, and evaluating what we've accomplished, and then we're adding in what we would like to continue to do. So. Uh, this past fall, we had um, a, a day for outreach to talk to landowners, to talk to other NGOs, to talk to cities and towns, um, kind of like we did in the beginning, just a little bit more at a smaller scale, uh, to see what things we needed to concentrate on, what things do we still have left to do. There is still a lot of work to do for monarchs and monarch conservation in the state of Missouri. So we are evaluating that now, and then we are going to implement that into the second phase of our Missourians for Monarchs and Pollinators plan. Mm -hmm. Um, We're adding it all in because recently the rusty patch bumblebee was listed and put on the endangered species Mm -hmm. list. So we're working to improve habitat for all pollinators and um, doing the work that we've been doing uh, to the level that we've been doing it is, is part of that. And reaching out to others to help them understand the value of the species but really the value of native habitats in the state of Missouri is where we need to go next. So I'm assuming much like pheasants and quail that need early successional habitat in a landscape that's pretty intensively managed, the same is true with, with monarchs and pollinators. In other words, you know, this isn't a, oh, we achieved the goal and everything's going to be good now. Like, this is going to be ongoing. Yeah, it is, you know... Restoring grassland, native grassland habitat is one thing. Getting it on the landscape is one thing. But then you have to take care of it. Um, So one of the challenges that Missouri faces on a daily basis is invasive plants. Hmm. 
And so you have to ensure that in your prairie planting or your grassland planting that you're not going to have invasive species take the whole thing over. So you have to be cognizant of that. You also need to be cognizant of the proper times to mow or the proper times to apply a prescribed burn. Um, and you need to work with your technical professionals to do that, either biologists from the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program or Farm Bill biologists from Quail Forever um, or some of our other leading organizations that help landowners manage their property. Uh, we also need to make sure that land managers on public land know how to manage for monarchs and for pollinators. Um, one of the biggest things that folks do in the summertime is what mow <laughs> um, so if they're mowing you know some of the habitats that support pollinators they need to understand True. when to back off so mm -hmm. so we still have a lot of education to do i think that's probably critical um, and then keeping these uh, habitat components in place is is really important and educating landowners on how to do that as part of what we do right. in the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program. Yeah, you talked about landowners and educating the opportunities there and the different cost share programs and, you know, state federal programs that they might be able to enroll in. But yeah, I'll circle back to public lands too. And while it may only be 6%, it's like it's under the state and federal control. So you know, you should be a slap on the back for doing that, you know, jumping right in because improving the quality of that habitat, whether it's a WPA or a wildlife refuge or a state game area, not only is that diversity in forbs and grasses going to benefit pollinators and monarchs pretty much instantly, going to create some pheasants and mm -hmm. quail and, you know, selfishly from a hunting perspective it's going to make some of the greatest mm -hmm. hunting habitat out there it is and, and today I, I actually provide an example in one of the talks that i gave earlier this morning um, talking about a landowner that we've worked with down in the southwest part of the state who had a piece of property that had basically for all intents and purposes been abandoned it been in his family for a very long time but he hadn't done anything with the property and he's a cattle rancher um, and he thought, you know what, I remember when I was a kid when this was prairie. And so he approached us through the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program and also the Department of Conservation um, saying, what can we do? Mm. Uh, we worked with him to take all of the trees and the shrubs out and then basically helped him work out a burn plan for prescribed burning that he wanted to do on his own and he was comfortable doing that so gave him some pointers and and he's he's been doing that on a fairly regular basis because you know mm. fire is kind of fun when you're a biologist <laughs> but um i'll leave and it when off. it's prescribed and controlled yeah. exactly i'll leave that at that but um but anyway the 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 amazing response and and he had told me you know i haven't heard quail out here and i i don't remember yeah. when uh, I see a monarch once in a while. Well, since we've done that work, which it's been in place, I think, for the last three years, he has had an incredible response of native plants mm. that we did not even have to seed. It was already there. Yeah. He just needed to get the trees out of the way, put some fire on the, on the, on the habitat, and then see what came in. Now he has talked to him this morning he's here at the meeting he said I've got regularly um, on this I think it's about 80 acres 
regularly I'm, I'm hearing quail and three coveys all the time. Yeah. We, it's a, it's a story I never get tired of hearing and I keep hearing more and more. That's when somebody dives in like completely head over heels for this kind of habitat, pollinator habitat, and they, they plant, you know, the diverse mix of wildflowers. And in about three years, it establishes and pops up. And to hear them talk about walking out onto their property and, you know, a nice summer morning when the flowers are in bloom and the insects are buzzing and all the variety of flowers and the quail are whistling and the pheasants are cackling and they break down in tears about how beautiful their property is how restored they feel Mm -hmm. and how much they have fallen kind of re-fallen in love with nature I mean that's not a one-off sort of story I mean yeah I hear that everywhere I go Mm -hmm. when people start talking about pollinator habitat and prairie flowers and what it's done for their overall quality of life it's awesome it is and this same landowner he was he was so cute he's like you know kelly i i hate to admit it he said but you know last year i saw so many monarchs i couldn't get over it he said it was the most beautiful thing i'd ever seen and i've seen monarchs before he said but now i'm starting to appreciate them Mm -hmm. um and then knowing all of the other wildlife that are responding to his property he's in a very high priority prairie setting in southwest missouri so he's going to be providing for all of these these birds mm. in addition to monarchs and and he is he is just head over heels that he's been able to bring that back and it's in stark contrast to you know there was a talk from Aaron Jeffries um, Missouri Department of Conservation this morning how uh, school children in Missouri mm-hmm. um, in Kansas in, mm-hmm. in Kansas City Missouri and Kansas um, would see a monarch in downtown Kansas, Kansas City, and, and be frightened by it. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me think back to Otto Leopold's writing and, you know, how, you know, this package of chicken, it, you know, people are so disconnected from where their food comes right. from or where the heat in their furnace coming from the wood and how we treat the land. And kind of the monarch butterfly is, is the modern age embodiment of all all the leopold's land ethic Mm -hmm. like how on earth we can live in a time where a youngster is afraid of a monarch Mm -hmm. it's like boy we got trouble yeah and thankfully through this partnership we're turning the tide we are and and you know one of aldo leopold's quotes that resonates with me probably more so than any is that some people can live without wild things but some people cannot. He's from the camp that he could not. Right. I'm from the camp that I cannot. And Testify, sister. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And teaching kids to appreciate nature is critical. Yeah. We just, we have to do that and, and help them understand not to be afraid of wildlife. Yeah. Whether you have a shotgun in your hand or not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's all part of the natural world and makes this a special place. It does. Um, Missourians for Monarchs, what do you want listeners, uh, you know, if, if there's a landowner out there, maybe there's a, a company or potential partner that wants to learn more, how do you want them to engage? 
anybody that that is listening, you know, learn more about the monarch and learn more about pollinators. Every single person can do something for monarchs and pollinators. And it doesn't matter if you've got a 10 by 10 square in your backyard, if you've got a patio garden, or if you've got a back 40 that you want to work on. Um, there are people who can help you. Uh, you, can, you can go to a, a local nursery and get native plants. I would encourage everybody don't be afraid of the word weed in the name, mm -hmm. plant milkweed. Mm -hmm. Plant milkweed for this species mm -hmm. because it will not survive without it. Yep. And through Quail Forever, if you have a local chapter that you know about, contact them. Mm -hmm. um, let them know that you're interested in that. They then have additional connections, like to me through the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program and to other agencies and Farm Bill. Uh, where we can help with those larger acreages and, and help get that habitat back on the ground for quail, monarchs, bees, other butterflies. <laughs> we can just go on and on. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. I've said this before, but, you know, we all were learned about the web of life in third grade, right? I was in the UP, so I learned about it in sixth grade. It was a little slower. But uh, <laughs> 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 we, we, we all learned about the web of life. Everything is interconnected. Quality habitat on the ground benefits, you know, monarch butterflies, quality, water quality, soil, pheasants, quail. And somewhere along the way, we sort of lost that. Well, through I think through what's happened culturally and uh, awareness about the plight of pollinators and monarchs, honeybees, and how connected that is to our food system and you know, I relate back to all the Leopold's writings again. Um, we're sort of relearning that. Thank goodness. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's all back to the web of life, isn't it? It truly is. And and you know, helping helping everybody understand that we are all connected in one way or another to nature, whether mm -hmm. we know it or not, is is an important lesson to take away from the story of the monarch. Right. Um, you know, you can you can say that that you're a hunter, and the the last thing you would think about would be monarchs. But as a hunter, definitely think about monarchs in in the perspective of the habitat it relies on. That's important for the things that you may hunt, yeah. and having that quality uh, grassland habitat for the monarch is definitely going to benefit all these other species as well. So I'll ask you each for your closing thoughts as we wrap up. If you have any. It, Perhaps something we didn't touch upon or perhaps mm -hmm. something you wanted to make is stress as a really important point that's come up. But as, a, as we do that, I'll remind listeners, um, while we're talking about Missourians for Monarchs, uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have lots of programs that are similar to this happening from coast to coast. Um, and you can engage with our organization, go to the Conservation tab, on our website, there's a drop-down menu for Farm Bill Biologists. That's the place to start. Our Farm Bill Biologists are very knowledgeable about finding the right milkweed to grow in your state and uh, different programs that uh, you might be able to qualify for as a landowner, farmer, rancher that uh, could help you get pollinator or brood habitat on the ground for, for that web of life we're talking about. 
So the Madonna of Monarchs, mm-hmm. Donna Marie. Yes. You like that? I think I that do. we're going to coin it. The Madonna that of Monarchs. <laughs> I like it. I do too. Donna Marie, what's your, uh, what's your closing thought for us today? So one of the things I, I touched on it earlier was um, the suburban urban. Um, I just don't want anyone to feel left out. And Kelly just touched on it as well with regards to, um, you know, maybe you don't have the acreage, but you can do a 10 by 10 plot in your backyard. There are some people that live in an apartment. Maybe they only have a small patio maybe they don't even have that if you don't have any land but you want to make a difference you want to contribute because as you mentioned earlier one-third of every bite of food that we take in you know it comes from pollinators um then maybe reach out to your community see if your school your local school your local church any of your you know your local if you're in a um development a lot of the um what are the HOAs? I, what are the homeowner associations? Associations. <laughs> acronym. Never know what it stands for. You just know what it is. Um, but yeah, the homeowner associations, yeah. they're starting to come together as neighborhoods and, and putting things in. So maybe get involved in, in something, you know, like that in your community. Just if, if you feel the need or you have the desire to get involved, but you don't necessarily have the land or the acreage yourself, there are other avenues that you can, you know, reach out and get involved and still make a difference and still contribute to, you know, the species and these varied species that all contribute to our better life and our better way of living. That's a terrific point. And I think about, you know, the complexity of the migration makes it daunting when you start thinking about monarchs, but it's also got some things going for it. And one of the things, as you point out, is, you know, we're not talking about a species like an elk, Right, that right. needs thousands upon thousands of acres right. for their life. Right now, monarchs need thousands upon thousands of acres, but you know that backyard plot. Right, mm-hmm. maybe just mo- you know, um, rototill a piece of your uh, lawn mm-hmm. and plant a little native prairie meadow mm-hmm. with some milkweed in it, and you will be contributing to the solution. Yep, can be as simple as that. Exactly. The next best part about that is you could bring the neighbor kids over or your kids or your grandkids and show them that prairie plot and see all the life that exists there. Good point. Kim, closing thoughts. I think for me it's just making sure that, you know, these conversations we've had today and that we have in our circles here in the conservation world, we are having those conversations with everyone else that we come across, um, whether it is our friends and neighbors, whether it's those inner city kids that we talk about who are fearful of butterflies, mm-hmm. um, you know, anybody and everybody. We need to tell these these meaningful stories, the cool story of the life cycle of the monarch and how unique that is, making those connections with quail and pheasants and other things um if we can really tell that story well and tie all those things together we're going to find places where people can connect with that story maybe it is behind a shotgun maybe it's not um if we can find those those points of those stories that people can connect with and have value with then we're really going to start not only bringing that awareness up bringing their understanding up but they're going to get more and more bought into that and they're going to want to know what else can I do to help how how can I get more habitat out there how can I get other people involved with this um you know we'll really get that fire going for them and we just we have to keep telling that story we can be successful and have these awesome collaboratives and partnerships and work with chapters and private landowners and we can do all this work but if we're successful and then we quit talking about it it, it's going to get forgotten. We're going to lose that. Um, so I think we just really have to keep 
sharing that story, connecting with people over and over again and connecting with new people and not letting them forget, you know, at a point where we were with the decline in monarchs and pollinators and, you know, we weren't in good shape at a point. We're starting to see those come back up. We're recovering from that. But if we forget where we were, we're not going to remember where we've come. And it's just got to share that story. It's like we need a culture-altering movie. Kind of like, remember that Whooping Crane movie? Mm, yeah. What Was that uh, Fly Away Home? Is that the right name? I think, that, you, I think that's it. Uh, I think that's it. It's like we need a monarch movie. Isn't there one that was out there, there recently? Oh, um, there's, see, a there's movie one. about monarchs? I, yeah, and I want, I want to say it's... I want to say it's on Netflix or something. <laughs> I haven't se- I haven't seen it, but I remember hearing about it at least. So maybe it's in the process or something. That, now I'm going to Google. <laughs> that's what I'm going to be doing tonight, Googling now. But I, the Madonna of Monarchs. That's kind of got a movie ring to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> Closing thoughts, Kelly. Well, you know... I've been doing this gig with the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program for almost 30 years. And the one thing that I can say about the monarch is that I have not seen the level of citizen response to the plight of the monarch for any other species in my entire career. Mm. We've all known that the, the northern bobwhite has been declining We've got certain groups that are concerned about that, but we don't have the level of response from all of the citizenry. I have given more talks about monarch and monarch populations over the past four years than I have any other species. Ducks, it doesn't matter. Ducks, um, songbirds, Mm -hmm. endangered species, it doesn't matter. I've given more talks about monarchs than anything. I think that's a good thing because that gives me hope. That tells me that people care. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we can then connect the monarch to all of these other things, the monarch is a fantastic messenger. But in addition to that, the other fantastic messenger is the conservation organizations that I have the the luxury and pleasure of working with on a day-to-day basis. And Quail Forever is one of those. Um, there was a time, again, this morning I was telling a story about how Pheasants Forever existed in our Fish and Wildlife Service region in the northern part of the region, and I was constantly hearing stories of all the great collaborative efforts that were going on between Pheasants Forever and the Fish and Wildlife Service through the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. And I was thinking, dang, if we could only have pheasants in Missouri, because we just really don't have a lot of pheasants. And then Quail Forever was born. (laughs) And I said, that's my end. (laughs) And that has turned out to be such a fantastic partnership. The Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program and Pheasants Forever have worked together for 30-plus years. And now Quail Forever is here. Um, We have pretty much the same eye-in-the-pie kind of approach Mm. to habitat and trying to get, uh, you know, the best habitat for the species that we are focused on on the ground for landowners and for the species as well. So um, I just thank Pheasants and Quail Forever for all they do and how they help us and how we help each other and how we have the capability to 
help others get the habitat that they that they want. Wonderfully yeah. stated. Um, if folks want to learn a little bit more about Missourians for Monarchs, there's a web website, right? There is. MoForMonarchs.org, <laughs> and it's M-O-F-O-R, Monarchs.org. Right. I looked at Donna Marie because we've changed it a couple times, <laughs> and so it's, it's hard to keep up. I have a link, so I never <laughs> go to that. But also, if people want to know more about the Partners for Fish and Wildlife program, just get on the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, .gov page, fws.gov. Um, go to uh, the left-hand side. You'll see Partners for Fish and Wildlife on the left-hand side, and there's a link to all of the different state coordinators, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm one of those. Mm -hmm. so. Yep, and if people want to get more connected with our Farm Bill biologists here in Missouri um, and all of our staff that we have here, um, they can go to our Missouri state website, missouripfqf.org, um, and we're on social media as well, at MissouriQF, so there's a lot of ways to get in touch with us and we are eager to help. We want to work with everybody, and, you know, it's, a, it's an important cause for all of us. Um, so let us know. We're here to help. Well, I want to thank you all for sharing your stories and your time. I, this has been a fascinating conversation and super fun. Uh, it's thrilling to see how passionate all of you are about this mission and how exactly what you said, Kelly, the, the connection between monarchs and kind of societal uh, embrace of conservation whether you uh, chase you know wildlife with shotguns or with binoculars or with your heart um, you know we all end up in the same place so thank you for sharing your stories thank you um, yeah for kelly kim and donna marie the monarch <laughs> madonna um, i'm bob st pierre thanking everyone for listening to this episode of on the wing podcast with pheasants forever and quail forever if you're not yet a member please join our mission get involved in habitat conservation and you can do so at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org and i will sign off with some very important words and those are always follow the dog <laughs> Something good will rise. I promise. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>